I'm, uh, I'm excited to continue uh, the series this morning. Uh, in case I already uh, have not done this, I apologize. My name is Claude. And I'm, uh, me and my wife, Meredith, are the lead pastors here at Centerway. And uh, really excited to be with you this morning and continue in a journey as we uh, continue to move through 1 Corinthians. And uh, the, the name of the series is On Second Thought. On Second Thought. And the title of this morning's message is Everything is Good. On Second Thought, Everything is Good. And... Uh, as we move through the beginning part of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, if you were here last week, you understand where I'm going with this. Like, it, it's obviously and unapologetically about marriage and divorce and singleness and all those things. It would be real easy for us to have kind of said, let's do a marriage series. Uh, but I think, uh, honestly, that would kind of be a cop-out um, because it's kind of low-hanging fruit and to just preach uh, the text at face value. I believe that there's something underneath the text. Uh, last week we talked about that, and this week we're going to continue. So whether you're single, uh, divorced, remarried, uh, whatever your phase of life might be, a widow, widower, uh, or if you're married, um, this, this applies to you. And so we're going to preach the text in a way that applies to every single one of us. Um, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is the author of 1 Corinthians. And so to catch you up a little bit, I'm going to be referring to Paul. And so if you're here for the first time, you're like, who is this Paul dude he keeps talking about? That's the author of 1 Corinthians and um, obviously inspired by the Lord uh, to write 1 Corinthians. And so it's a letter in response to a letter that was written. So um, Paul had written a letter to the church in Corinth, a church that he planted. They responded with another letter. And now 1 Corinthians is actually uh, his second letter. 1 Corinthians is his second letter. Uh, so that would mean 2 Corinthians is his third. And 3 Corinthians, just kidding, just wondering if, you, if I could catch anybody there. Like, what? There's a 3 Corinthians? My Bible's broken. Anyway, um, no, so... Uh, Something unique is happening in chapter 7. He's actually responding to direct questions that are being asked from the church in Corinth. All right? So we're going to pick up, and we're just going to uh, tackle a small number of verses this morning, verses 8 through 11. It says this. Uh, you can follow along either on the screens or with the app if you have it. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. All right, let's open up in a word of prayer as we kind of center our hearts for what it is that the Lord may be speaking to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We're thankful to be in your presence. We're thankful to be um, in this place uh, with others sort of leaning in. And God, I pray that we would have an authentic encounter with the living God this morning. That as we leave this place, uh, we would take something of life change, something that you have whispered into our heart and mind, and be forever marked as a result. In your name we pray. Everyone said, amen, amen. So like I said, um, it could be real easy to talk about this text at face value, um, singleness, divorce, uh, but there's different types of people in this room in different walks of life, and I believe that the scripture is applicable to every single one of us, regardless of our season of life. And so if we just talk about marriage for uh, all of you in the room, be like, oh, I'm not married, or I don't want to be married, or whatever your mindset might be in the context of that. And so uh, we're going to talk about uh, the text 
the core underneath. We will talk about face value, but we're going to talk about the core of what it is that I believe the Lord is revealing through this text as we uh, broach this, this section of Scripture. As I was uh, uh, somewhat, I'm still somewhat new to the community here. We've lived here a little bit over a year, and uh, I've had issues several times with my cell phone. And uh, every time I go into the Apple Store, I have an iPhone. Every time I go into the Apple Store, it's like baiting me to buy more stuff. Like, I, I don't even know what it is. I don't know how it is that they do it. But you walk in, and um, they're basically just like, look at all this stuff that you need. And clearly, you should buy it. And uh, my, my speaker wasn't working on my um, my iPhone, I later realized it was because it got wet, and after I kept it in rice overnight, it resolved the issue. Um, but on the front end, the person there was like, you probably need a new iPhone. And I was like, oh, you think it's broken? He's like, I'm not sure it's broken, I mean, but it's old. <laughs> like, oh, well, that's a nice thought. Um, you're kind of old too. No, I just, <laughs> the, uh, but, but there's this, this mindset that uh, what I have is not new enough. Therefore, it couldn't possibly work the way that I want it to work. And so I got put into this little pool uh, in the back of the room waiting for uh, geniuses to come uh, engage me. Uh, That's what it's called, a genius bar, if you've never been to an Apple store. Um, What an amazing thing to be hired to do, right? Be like, you are a genius. Be like, I knew it! (laughs) I knew it, tell my mom. but in either case, uh, because of just how cool they are, they just have these boxes on the floor. Like, they're not even chairs. They're just boxes. And they're like, sit on the box. And everybody's like, ooh, I'm sitting on a box. So uh, everybody's sitting on boxes. And uh, some people are doing it more naturally than others. <laughs> There's some guys just falling off the box. Um, but in either case, uh, we're all kind of perched up on our little boxes in the back of the room. And I'm waiting to talk to a genius. And... Uh, there's this uh, elderly woman that is sitting near me and they call out her name and they want to talk about, so what's your issue this morning? And she goes, my, my phone's broken. And uh, he goes, it is. What exactly is wrong with it? She goes, I'm not sure. It's broken. And so he takes it and he goes, all right, let me see. He goes, when was the last time you powered it up? She's like, I don't know what you mean. And he said, when was the last time you, you turned it on? And she goes, oh, it doesn't have an on and off button. And he's like, well, sure it does. And she goes, no, it doesn't. And so she like holds it up. She's like, there's no button. And so he, of course, powers up by pushing the button, holding it down. It pops up on the screen. He slides it over and turns it on. She's like, oh my goodness. <laughs> and he's like, uh, ma'am, your phone was just off. And she's like, that's what was wrong with it? And he goes, yes, have you ever turned your phone off? She goes, no, I just plug it in and the little apple shows up and it's fine. I didn't know you could turn it off. Where's that off button? And he's like, well, you hold this down and then you slide that over. She's like, oh my goodness, that is amazing. And so she's just looking at it and everything. She's looking over, she's like, okay. She's like, can you do me a favor, son? And he's like, sure. She goes, can we not tell my husband about this? <laughs> and, uh, and he kind of laughs and he goes, sure, secret's safe with me, you know, and, uh, but you're all set. She goes, no, 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 no. Can we not tell my husband my phone isn't broken? And he's like, What? And she goes, I want a new iPhone. Let's just tell him it's broken. And he's like, it's perfectly fine, ma'am. She goes, I don't care. I want a new phone. And she's just like ecstatic about the idea that she's getting a new phone, but has completely disengaged with the fact that her phone is perfectly fine. She wants the newest version. So I have a question for you. Why are we so quick to discard what seems broken? 
Why are we so quick to just say it's broken? Let's get rid of it. We need a new one. We live in a society that's driven towards discarding what appears to be broken. I want to submit to you that the answer to that question is that we, we live in a disposable society like never before. The U.S. produced somewhere around, get this, 300 million tons of trash in 2018. What? 300 million tons of solid waste, things we threw out in 2018. In, in 1960, that figure was under 100 million tons. So we have tripled our garbage production in nearly 60 years. And, and now in 2018, we do a lot more with combustion and we do a lot more with uh, gaining energy from our trash and recycling and all of that stuff. And the point is this we throw more stuff out than ever before. In our society, we throw stuff out. Based on population, so dividing population with the amount of trash produced, the government reports that in 1960, the average person produced 2.68 pounds of garbage a day. They would throw out almost three pounds of garbage or two and a half pounds of garbage in a typical day. In 2015, which is the next time that they did this math, it had increased to 4.48, almost four and a half pounds of garbage per day that we just throw out. We used to repair things. Isn't that funny? Like, I grew up, and I'm, you know, not super old, I'm 41, right? Okay, <laughs> just making sure. <laughs> After, I could totally picture my wife being like, you know you're 42, right? <laughs> like, really? <laughs> or something. So I am 41. I just confirmed it. Um, when I was a kid, we had a cobbler. And the cobbler was somebody you brought your dress shoes to, and they would resole them. He's like, where'd you grow up? No, it was, I mean, it was normal, like upstate New York, like Syracuse area. We would go to a cobbler, and we would get our shoes repaired. Like, that does not happen anymore. And, I, and if you're a cobbler in the room, be like, I cobble. Do cobblers cobble? I don't know. What is that called? I'm not sure. That's kind of awesome. <laughs> uh, excuse me while I go cobble. Uh, in either case, whatever it's called, the fact is we used to repair stuff. We used to fix stuff. I remember someone showing up at our home to repair our television. They were a TV repairman, and they came to our TV because there was no possible way we could move the monstrosity that was our television to bring it to anyone else. He showed up in a van, and he walked in, and he's like, oh, I see the problem here. Like, that doesn't happen anymore. Now you just take that thing off the wall, and you either carry it to, a, to Best Buy and say, I don't know what's wrong, and they fix it there, or you just throw that thing out. You just throw it out. Get a new one. Why? It's broken. Just throw it away. Now we have this thing called leasing vehicles. Never heard of that stuff <laughs> just a couple decades ago. Like, how about you don't actually own and repair your car, you just borrow this one for a while, and when anything goes wrong, you just drop it off. Get a new one. Like, you're kidding. That sounds brilliant. We upgrade phones for no other reason except we're sick of the one we have. In fact, when it comes to technology, it doesn't even have to be broken. It's just, there's a new one. There's a better one. It's faster. I, I, it doesn't have the features I want. I really want to be able to do that. Have you checked out the camera on the new iPhone? I mean, let's throw mine out now. 
It's just garbage. It's amazing how in our society, we've just migrated towards this idea of a disposable mentality and we don't question it. Why? Because we believe that we're beneficiaries from it. I want something new. I get it. It's awesome. I've bought into this cycle of if it doesn't suit me, throw it away. We're so quick to discard things. If we aren't careful, this mindset will inform our relationships and even the way we view ourselves. Now listen to that for a second because that's the crux of what's happening right here in this text. If we aren't careful, the mindset of being disposable of that which is broken will inform our relationships and even the way we view ourselves. I want you to consider that thought as we unpack the text this morning, as we move through the text. I want you to consider this idea that maybe the mindset of disposable, the mindset of better, of faster, of what serves me best, has started to infiltrate into our relationships and into the way we even view ourselves. I want to give a little bit of context this morning before we unpack the text too much. Uh, I want to talk about Roman culture so that we can kind of understand some of the underlying tensions here and connect them to today. In Roman culture, and, and the church in Corinth, uh, the Corinthians were uh, a Roman colony, so it was, it was steeped in Roman culture. In Roman culture, the marriage age for a woman uh, was very young by today's standards. Typically, on average, uh, a Roman young lady was to be married at 12 years old. 12 years old. And if you were here last week, you heard that uh, it was typical that they would marry older men. And so they would marry older men, and it would be almost like a trading of material possession. And so as a result of them marrying older men, oftentimes they were widowed because the man that they married would die. Uh, Obviously a lot to do with uh, the age expectancy during that time, uh, war, a lot of different things that took place in the society. But the fact is there were a lot of young widows. Widows were expected, according to Roman culture, to remarry within a year. Husband died, so who are you going to (laughs) marry? Divorcees were expected to remarry within six months. Typical expectation. The culture was marry as quickly and as often as possible. In fact, if we look at a historian, Josephus, he talks about even uh, emperors and kings' uh, daughters being married two and three times before they were 16 years old because of the nature of the society they lived in. So as a result, widows and divorcees were typically teenagers. Teenagers. You see, as I mentioned last week again, Divorce was typical and frequent. It was very easy in Roman society. In fact, it required just a a single phrase. If you said this phrase, you were divorced, the marriage was over, and you then had to go find another spouse. Now, that's Roman society. Judaism was a little bit different. And so you have this, this Roman society, and then you have this core of people, these Jewish people, Judaism, and they're functioning within this Roman empire and colony. The rules were slightly different. There were two schools of thought. There was a more rigid, uh, or what would be considered rigid at that time, school of thought in Judaism that said the only way you could divorce was for unfaithfulness. That if there was unfaithfulness, then you could divorce. And that was considered extremely rigid based on Roman culture. There was another school of thought in Judaism, though, that said you could also legally and in right standing divorce your wife if she uh, produced a meal 
that was not satisfactory. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Oh my gosh, Meredith would be done. <laughs> I always think like, what if people just clipped one section of the podcast? You know, how much trouble I could get in. But yeah, it's ridiculous. The society, the, the court, when you look at it, you're like, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me that the society was like, you know what would be a good idea? Let's treat human beings like possessions. Let's go ahead and sell them off. And when they're disposable, then we just dispose of them. You find a new one and we just keep moving. We just keep making it happen. Can you imagine the pressure at dinner time? <laughs> you want to put a little more salt in that? <laughs> what else would you like? <laughs> Please don't throw me away. Like, oh my gosh, the pressure. The societal pressure went beyond just relational, though. It went into even fiscal, because in Corinth, an unmarried woman or man couldn't receive an inheritance. They were incapable of receiving an inheritance as a single person. And so there was this societal pressure to say, well, I need to get married. Why? Well, because if I want my inheritance, I got to find somebody. Women had to have at least three children to secure the inheritance of a husband. Isn't that amazing? So you'd be married to somebody and be one of the few statistics in Roman culture and be like, we've been married five years. Like, you're kidding. That's incredible. Yeah, but we only had two kids and he died, so I get nothing. What? Yeah, so you had to like earn it. Earn your worth. Earn your value. Listen, you're disposable. That's essentially what this community is communicating. All this pressure and varying definitions of worth. And Paul is urging Christians in the church at Corinth, because it's a letter to the Corinthians, the church in Corinth, to resist societal pressures. That's what he's saying. Paul's saying, don't determine that you're broken simply because society implies you are. Man, that rings true today, right? Don't determine that you're broken simply because you think that maybe society implies that you are. That's easier said than done, though, right? It's almost like give yourself a little pep talk. Like, hey, you matter, buddy. You really do. Like, okay, you say so. My mom says I'm smart. Yeah, well, your mom's dumb too. You know, like that's kind of the, the way that I would think when, <laughs> like, it's all right, buddy. You're valuable. You're special. We can try to give ourselves these pep talks, but the end of the day, they feel kind of empty because of our own voice. You see, we can try to do our best to cloud out what others say, what society says, what other people think of us. The problem is when they say something that is similar to what's resounding in our own heart and mind, when they confirm our worst ideas of who we believe ourselves to be, the problem, more often than not, is that we don't find very much value in ourselves. We wonder, are we broken? In fact, maybe there's evidence in our lives that we are a little broken. And so we get into this cycle of saying, maybe I am as broken as people think, as people say. You see, the God of heaven is trying to break a destructive cycle that existed then and that exists today. And so there's a warning here. Warning to singles, don't connect in a relationship or a marriage for fiscal stability. Don't connect in a relationship for purpose. 
Don't connect in a relationship for a sense of belonging. You won't find your identity in another person. It simply won't happen. And if you don't believe that, if you think your, your, your parents, if, if you're a, a, a teenager or a young adult this morning and you're like, wow, you sound like my mom or my dad, ask some people around you. It's never going to pay off. You don't find your value and your identity in another person. They will always fall short. If you've been in any type of dating relationship, and I spent 10 years, my wife and I spent 10 years in youth ministry, and there were these seasons where people, they'd be in relationships, and when all of a sudden the relationship comes to an end, They feel like a fractured part of themselves because they spent all that time trying to be what the other person wanted them to be. And in the midst of it, they lost themselves. They're trying to find value and identity in another human being. It's never going to happen. Verse 8 of chapter 7, as we start to unpack this, Paul says, To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Now listen, you need to read this verse in context of everything that Paul has written. Paul is not bashing marriage at all. In fact, he talks about marriage as being God-given in the prior chapter. So instead, what he's talking about is that if you're single here today, you aren't broken. You see, he's speaking to a society that says if you're single, something's wrong, you better remarry. If you're a, a, a widow, you better remarry. You've only, the time is clicking. The time clock is clicking. It's counting. What am I trying to say? (laughs) Ticking. Thank you. I can see everybody's look on their face like, come on, buddy, you can do it. (laughs) It is ticking, not clicking. But ticking sounds like clicking. And if I keep talking about ticking and clicking, I might get a tick. Anyway. So Paul is trying to say, in a society, I swear I can recover, in a society that says, listen, once you're divorced, once you're a widow, Once you're 12, the time is ticking. It's time to get married. So do it. Get married for fiscal stability, for identity, for worth, for all those reasons. Listen, if you don't find someone, something's wrong with you. Something's wrong with you. And Paul is saying, what a lie. Don't allow the society to define the way God views you. And so he's saying something right in verse 8, and he's saying, listen, if you're single, you're not broken. Listen, this morning, if you desire to be married, if you're a single person and you desire to be married, you will never regret finding your identity in Christ in this season. You'll never regret it. You'll never regret understanding who you are and what God has created you to be. In fact, it will stabilize you so that when you meet that other person, you aren't defined by them and you have the ability to say, this is who God's called me to be. How about you? You'll never regret it. You'll never regret the freedom you have with the time that you have right now in this season of your life. You'll never regret the freedom that singleness brings. You will never regret the financial freedom that singleness awards you. Oh my goodness. And we won't even talk about kids. (laughs) But you'll never regret the gift that singleness is. There's no rush. If you want to be married and you're single this morning, there's no rush. You're not broken. To those that don't desire to marry or remarry, you are not broken. We live in a society that looks at 
People that are widows, the people that are divorcees, people that are older and single, like, oh, don't worry. I have a friend. You should totally meet my friend. Yeah, I don't know why. It it runs rampant in, in Christendom, too. It's a church problem. Like, you know what? We just need to marry you. Why? I don't know, but I'm taking it as my responsibility. I know a guy, right? Until that guy is a dirtbag. And then they're like, hey, what about that guy? And they're like, I don't know. You messed up. I'm not sure. We'll find you someone else. Yeah, how about you don't? It's okay to want to remain single. That's all right. There's nothing wrong with that. And that's what Paul is saying. It's okay to remain single as I am. You are not broken. In fact, I rejoice in the fact that you have found a place to focus your time, your talent, and your treasure to further what God is doing here at Centerway and beyond. I think that we are blessed by some singles that are willing to roll up their sleeves and say, I've got some time, I've got some talent, I've got some treasure. I'm going to throw it in and see what it is that God is going to do in and through me. You are not broken if you want to remain single. There's nothing wrong with that. You see, the gospel flips what the world defines as valuable. The gospel gets it and it turns it right over. Society says, listen, you have to find someone else. You need fiscal stability. You need to have 2.1 kids and 1.2 dogs and a white picket fence. And I don't even know why they statistically figure all that out. But it's, and then they package it up and they say, the American dream. Now go earn it. Find value, find worth. Earn more, work harder. Oh, you're single? Hmm. Oh, well. Somebody will love you eventually. It's a travesty. It's a lie. It's society speaking lies into your life. And the gospel takes that and says, listen, you are valuable because God says you're valuable. Apart from any other human being on this earth, Jesus Christ himself calls you valuable if you'll allow that perspective to seep into your life. Verse 9 kind of a highly contested text in the sense that it's manipulated inappropriately sometimes. (laughs) Verse 9 says, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better for them to uh, marry than to burn with passion. Some texts say than to burn. It just ends there. When I was a kid, I was like, it's better to marry than to burn? All right. I better get married now. Why? I don't know. I have passion. I got passion. I'm 13 years old. I got passion. I'm getting married. I'm married. I don't want to burn. Mommy, don't let me bow. Don't don't let me burn. (laughs) Meredith, come save me. (laughs) We use it as as a text to imply that this idea of passion has to do with with avoiding the fires of hell, or or dealing with the fire of passion. So, what's the answer? What is the text really saying? The answer is actually found in the word self-control. When you look at the word self-control in its original text, it's actually associated with an athlete. And in the Corinthian games, which were second only to the Olympic games, they they knew a lot about athleticism. And so Paul is talking about how self-control, and he uses the word associated with an athlete, needs to be utilized. And so when you look at self-control in the context of athletes, you realize that Paul is not talking about an insatiable sex craze or anything like that. He's not talking about a burning passion, but he's speaking to an inability to concentrate on serving Christ. Isn't that interesting? That Paul is saying, 
if you're so distracted by the love and the passion you have for another, it is better for you to marry that person than to be distracted by what it is God's calling you to do by your passion for them. One of the commentaries, Thistleton, he says it so well, I'm just gonna literally quote him. He says this, Paul is addressing the couple whose desire for each other is so strong that it, is, that it constantly distracts them from the centrality of the gospel. I love that, right? You're like, oh, that's what it's about. He is addressing the couple whose desire for each other is so strong that it is constantly distracting them from the centrality of the gospel. And Paul is saying, if you're so distracted by what it is that, that God is calling you to do to the point where that person is becoming an idol, you're starting to worship your relationship instead of the centrality of who God is, then marry them. Then marry him. You see, we make everything about this plane so often. About stuff, about things, about stability, about relationships, about financial stability. And the Bible is simplifying it super simplifying it. If you're single and you want to marry someday, increase your proximity to Christ. If you're single and you don't want to remarry, increase your proximity to Christ. If you're a couple wanting to marry, increase your proximity to Christ. You see, it's not rocket science here. It's about leaning in and realizing that God the God of heaven, God himself, loves you so much that he's saying, if you would just draw yourself close to me, I'll give you an identity and a purpose. I'll speak into your life. It's all about the gospel being the center of our lives. So is it about singleness, marriage, divorce? Yeah, at face value. But at its core, it's about the gospel being the center of our lives, regardless of the season of life we find ourselves in. You see, verse 10 and 11, Paul goes on, he says, to the married I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, it shouldn't shock anybody in this room that God is for marriage, right? The divorce shouldn't happen among believers. The scripture gives room for situations involving unfaithfulness and abuse where divorce is permitted as a last resort. And I realize that there are divorced people here in this room. And I don't pretend to understand every situation, nor would I ever paint in broad strokes as if I understand your circumstances that led you to that decision. But if you've been through a divorce this morning, you remember the pain and brokenness of it. I've never met anybody that went into marriage saying, so right around year two, we're thinking maybe we'll separate, and then around year three, boom, divorce. You know, like, nobody plans for that. It's not part of the goal on the front end. There's a wreckage that's associated with it, with broken relationships and familial tensions and awkwardness and difficulty. And, and if you don't believe that, just have a conversation with what is probably a large contingency of the people in this room. Divorce is not God's plan. But I want to tell you this morning that if that's part of your story, he will redeem it. He will redeem it. 
It's, it's not part of the plan. It's not anything that we should intend. It's something that we should avoid at all costs. But if it's part of your story, you're not broken. God will redeem it. The gospel is a message of hope for those that are on that road. And so this morning, if you find yourself on that road and you've heard lies and judgment from others and yourself, realize that it's lies. Realize this morning that there's a lie at the core of that. And so if we have a room filled with people that feel broken on some level, because you see, it's a fallen condition, this brokenness, this imperfection. We know ourselves better than anyone else, and in the quietness of our mind, we understand our own failures. We know where we fall short, where other people compliment us, where they probably shouldn't, where, where people say, hey, you, huh, you are really somebody I look up to, and you think, wow, if only you knew this, or if only you knew that. We're our own worst critic. And so at the core of who we are as humans, regardless of what we think about God or aren't sure about God, and I realize there are people all across the gamut in the room this morning. The fact is, we realize how broken we are on some level. And, as Americans, we have a propensity to discard what seems broken. And therein lies the problem. We're faced with the awareness the raw reality of our own brokenness and our own propensity to discard that which is broken. And when they meet, it's disastrous. I have a friend who's a pastor. He tells an amazing story. He went and visited a friend of his at their home and uh, he went into one of their rooms as he was getting a tour of their house and there's this big uh, picture, almost, I guess is the best way to describe it. It's like a mosaic. And he was amazed by its beauty. And uh, he's like, did somebody make this, or did you buy it? And uh, the, the child that is giving him the tour said, um, yeah, no, that's, uh, that's my mom. She made it. He goes, she made it? And he goes, it was just gorgeous. He goes, it was incredible. This huge picture. Mosaic of pieces of glass all fit together. He goes, wow, she's, she's an artist. And the kid goes, well, yeah, funny story about that. He goes, what? He goes, well, whenever we broke something as kids, my mom would collect it. She'd collect the pieces. No matter what it was, she started to point to different things broken on this mosaic. My mom just decided to take all the broken pieces of things that we had broken and put it together into this beautiful piece of artwork. It's an incredible and profound picture of the heart of God. That in our brokenness, and we see these pieces of us, they feel like they're shattering all over the place. We look at our lives sometimes, we say, there's no way I can put that together. I've broken some stuff in my life. And I look at all the shards of glass everywhere, and I go, well, that's garbage. I can't put that back together. And yet we have this amazing picture of a mother that picks these pieces up and says, I'm going to make something beautiful of this. I want to tell you it's your heavenly father that when you look at your life and the brokenness of it, that it's, that it's God himself that would come and take these little pieces that you say it's garbage. God, I'm, I'm garbage. I'm too broken. I, I'm too, listen, I'm not valuable. And he's saying, no, I'm making something beautiful. I'm redeeming it. I'm redeeming it. Not, not in the future, now. 
God is redeeming it now. You are not broken. You're not broken. And in your brokenness, in your own internal brokenness, in the lies that you've spoken to yourself, at least be aware of the redeeming power of Jesus Christ himself. You see, you thought you were broken. But on second thought, everything is good. On second thought, everything is good. Because Jesus was broken so we could find wholeness in him. I can sit here and, and tell you to, to change your, perspe- your perception of yourself as much as I want. And some of you will listen and some of you will maybe listen for an hour and be like, you know what, I felt good in that message. For a window there, I almost believed I had value. <laughs> Until society and the worries of this world come crashing in. And so instead of me putting my best effort to try to speak truth to you, instead, I will tell you that Jesus Christ died on a cross and his body was broken so that you could find wholeness in him. And you are valuable because he says you are. So when we increase our proximity to Christ, we increase our proximity to truth. Because Jesus says, I am the truth, I'm the life, I'm the way. You want to replace the lies in your life with truth? Increase your proximity to the truth teller. Stop listening to the lies of the world and stop speaking lies over yourself. You aren't broken. God has a plan. He's got a plan. And for some of you that are in this room this morning and you say, you know what? I I mean, I feel broken every once in a while, but... I'm not sure that I really feel like a broken person. I want to tell you that the hope and the peace and the truth that you have been awarded in your life is a platform for you to be able to speak truth into others. This is a community. It's a community of truth tellers. And so when people are broken, go and speak truth into them. Maybe what it is that God's talking to you about in this text is that you would be a truth speaker one who has found wholeness in Christ to be able to speak that truth to others. And so this morning as we consider what the application is for us individually, I want to ask you this question. What is God asking me to do as part of his restoration process? As you leave this place, I want you to to challenge your heart and mind with this question. I want you to ask yourself, There are times that we leave questions for you to discuss with others. I want you to ask a question of yourself this morning as you leave. What is God asking me to do as part of his restoration process? Maybe for you this morning, the the piece of restoration is finding your identity in him. Stop looking for it here and maybe you need to cross that line of salvation and say, listen, I have lived for myself. I have run the rat race. I've been like a gerbil. I've tried to find peace and hope in, uh, in alcohol, in drugs, in relationships, in all these things. And it leaves me feeling as broken and as empty as it did when I first started. I've tried to self-medicate and I'm still just as broken. Your application this morning is to find identity in him. And it's as simple as saying, God, I've tried it myself enough, but I know you died for my sin, for my brokenness. So would you give me wholeness? Will you come and be the Lord and leader of my life? It can be that easy this morning.
For others of you, you have to lean into your singleness as a gift to further the mission of God. Stop, stop striving. Stop feeling pressure. If you don't feel like you should ever get married, that's okay. Embrace your singleness. It's a gift to further the mission of God. For others of you, you have to center your marriage on the gospel. You've found um, maybe this redeeming quality in who God says you are and he has healed this brokenness and you're in this relationship and you're still searching for identity and belonging from another person because you thought marriage would change something. And lo and behold, it doesn't. Maybe you're remarried and you're looking and you're saying, man, this story feels really similar to the last story I was just in. Would you put the gospel at the center of your marriage? What does Jesus say about what you're going through? For others of you this morning, you're going to love this one. <laughs> Some of you need to make peace with your ex. I, I was like writing my message and there's these general applications that I feel like I just need to sort of speak out at the end of the message that'll resonate with some of our hearts. And I felt like I had to be specific with this one because it's somebody in here. I don't know who it is, but I feel like the Lord wants somebody in this room to just realize enough is enough. I have to make peace with them. I don't know what peace looks like. I don't know if it means forgiveness in your own solitude before God or if it means a conversation. I don't pretend to know, but I know that for someone, the Lord is asking and challenging you that the application is for you to make peace with someone that you believe broke you. God wants to redeem that. In fact, he is. So I don't know where you fall on that. I'm not sure what it is that the Lord wants you to do, but I know that the scripture requires something from every single one of us. So I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes if you would. I want you just to consider what it is that the Lord's asking you to do. How can you be part of the restoration process? Maybe it means you've walked the journey and you have to look at someone else and say, listen, you are valuable. Let me share my story with you. Let me share you a, with you a story of brokenness and, and be a little bit vulnerable because I believe that God is redeeming something in you. Maybe that's the part you play. I, I don't know. But I know God has something for each and every one of us. We have to stop approaching relationships and ourselves as if we can just be discarded, upgraded. So I'm going to pray a prayer. I'm going to ask that you would just allow the Lord to speak to you as we pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, pray that you would search our hearts and minds, that you would reveal to us even now what it is that you're doing. What does the redeeming process look like? So Lord, I pray that as those pray a, a prayer of salvation, as they cross that line of faith, Lord God, I pray that you would come in like a flood, that you would give them a peace that passes all understanding, that they would have an encounter with the living God to be forever changed. For others of us, Lord, I just pray against the lies that we speak to ourselves the lies that have even been spoken over people in this room where people have said things out of hurt, frustration. Lord, I pray that your truth 
would ring true. This morning we would have an encounter with the living God to be forever changed. If you would just stand, go into a time of worship and response. Let's respond to what it is that the Lord has done for us.